You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Paul Jones. Jones called to the house of his father, Paul Jones, on Bandon Road on the south side of Cork City. Kean was worried as he hadn't been able to contact Paul for a number of days and his phone calls and text messages had gone unanswered. This set off alarm bells for Kean as his 54-year-old father lived alone and had a number of health issues. He was also a heavy drinker, and Kean was worried that he may have fallen ill or had an accident which had rendered him unable to call for help. Kean arrived at the small terraced on-street bungalow at half past eleven and used his key to unlock the front door, but he found himself unable to push the door open, as there seemed to be something obstructing it from the other side. A friend of his father's was passing up the road at the time, and noticing that Kean was having trouble, he went over to offer his assistance. The two men put their shoulders to the door, managing to wedge it open a crack, and it was then that Kean saw his father's body lying on the floor in the hallway. Kean dialed 999, alerting them to the situation, and an ambulance raced to the scene. However, Paul Jones was a rather large man, and with the bulk of his body blocking the doorway, paramedics were unable to gain access. One of the emergency responders was able to get a hand through the door, and she confirmed that Paul's body was cold to the touch, and that there was also a large quantity of blood visible in the hallway. A call was put into Gardee and the fire service to come and assist the ambulance crew in securing access to the house. The fire service personnel soon arrived, and they got in by going over the wall at the rear of the property and climbing through an open window, giving paramedics and Gardee a route into the house without disturbing the scene. Paul was lying on his right side in the hallway, wearing only his underwear. The floor surrounding him was sticky with congealed, dried blood, which also covered his body. He was obviously deceased, and the paramedics confirmed this, noting that rigor mortis had set in and was well established. Gardie arrived moments later, and the area was designated a crime scene. The house was sealed off for a technical examination and officers on foot began door-to-door inquiries to try and establish Paul's last movements. There was no sign of forced entry at the property, so investigators were working off the theory that Paul knew his attacker, and they appealed for anyone who may have seen anything suspicious on Bandon Road or the adjoining McCurtain Villas in the previous days to come forward. It was quickly established that Paul was last seen alive four days before the discovery of his body, so officers were working to ascertain if he had fallen out with anyone in the interim, and CCTV was harvested from nearby businesses to try and piece together the story. Of particular interest was footage captured by the Lock Credit Union, which was located on a wide corner less than 50 feet from Paul's house. According to Anne Murphy reporting for the Evening Echo, Paul had a number of convictions for public order offences and burglary spanning back years, and he had spent some time in prison because of this, 
but in the past decade he had found God and turned his life around, living a very quiet existence. Gardie now faced the task of trying to uncover who would have had a motive to kill the man that locals described as a gentle giant. Paul's body was removed to the morgue at Cork University Hospital, and the following day, Assistant State Pathologist Linda Mulligan performed a post-mortem examination. Dr Mulligan found that Paul Jones had suffered a very violent death, and had a total of 25 stab wounds to the chest, stomach, upper back and right arm. These wounds varied from 2 to 12 centimetres deep, resulting in a collapsed lung and lacerations to the right kidney and liver. However, the most significant injury to Paul's body was what the pathologist described as a, quote, chop wound to the head. Dr Mulligan surmised that the wound was caused by a machete or similar implement, which had struck the front of the head, cleaving into the skull and causing a fracture, which resulted in a bleed injury to the brain. On the basis of Dr Mulligan's report, Gardine knew that they were looking for a machete-type blade and a knife. No weapons were uncovered at the house on Bandon Road during the technical examination, so officers began a painstaking search of nearby gardens and open areas. Paul's family were devastated by his loss and the horrific nature of his death. This was compounded by the fact that two of his siblings had also died young, and both of his parents had passed away in recent years. In a statement to the press, his heartbroken family paid tribute to him, saying, quote, He was a dad of one, he had a heart of gold. In his later years, he was a very private, religious and generous man. Our family is shocked and devastated that Paul had to endure this death by the hands of another person. Everyone deserves justice for this horrendous crime, and so does our beloved Paul. As investigators continued to trawl through hours of CCTV recordings, they finally got a break. The footage showed that at a quarter to ten on the evening of Wednesday, September 4th, Three days before the discovery of Paul's body, a Volkswagen caddy with a taxi plate arrived at Bandon Road. It was captured going up Bandon Road before coming to a stop and letting a woman out. A few minutes later, the taxi did a U-turn and pulled up directly outside Paul Jones' house and a man got out. The taxi waited a few minutes before driving off and shortly after this, a man and a woman were caught on camera heading down Bandon Road and turning in the direction of McCurtain Villas. A subsequent search of the gardens in McCurtain Villas uncovered a billhook, which is a combination of a machete and a bush axe with a short hooked blade. It was stuck in a hedge. The weapon, which was coated in dried blood, was sent for forensic testing. After examining the CCTV footage closely, on Wednesday, September 11th, Gardy arrested Paul's sister, Helen Jones, and her partner, Keith O'Hara. Olivia Kelleher reported the arrests in the Irish Examiner, and the following day it was revealed that Helen was charged with aggravated burglary and brought to Cork District Court. The charge stated that on September 4th at 108 Bandon Road, she committed a burglary of a building and at the time had with her a knife, contrary to Section 13 of the Criminal Justice Act. There was no application for bail, and because Jones was in receipt of disability payment, she was granted free legal aid. Keith O'Hara was charged with trespass to commit an assault causing harm. On September 26th, he appeared again at Cork District Court to make an application for bail. Solicitor Frank Bottomer represented O'Hara in court. 
Gardi objected to the application, with Garda Joe Young telling the court that this was a sustained and violent assault, resulting in Paul Jones suffering both a number of stab wounds as well as a serious injury to the head. Paul's brother Liam also appeared at the bail hearing, objecting to the release of O'Hara. He told the judge, quote, I am terrified he would come after me. Someone killed my brother. I was thinking I could be next. Judge Olin Kelleher refused bail and remanded O'Hara in custody. The following month, Helen Jones applied for bail, but again, Liam Jones was in court to object, expressing fear that his sister would petrol bomb his house if she were released on bond. Helen Jones responded through her solicitor, Eddie Burke, by saying that if there was a petrol bomb thrown through Liam's window, she would not be the one throwing it. Liam testified before the court that he was in fear of his sister and revealed that he was particularly vulnerable because he was currently in treatment for cancer. Liam said, quote, Every time she sees me, she calls me cancer balls and says, I hope you die roaring. I'm afraid a petrol bomb will come through the window. Eddie Burke cross-examined Liam Jones, suggesting that Jones wanted his sister kept in custody so that he could sell the family home. Liam Jones denied this, telling the judge that there was a court agreement in place that the family home at Cahargal Avenue in Mayfield would be sold. The proceeds would then be divided between the siblings, and Helen Jones was permitted to stay in the house until that happened. Helen responded to this, saying that Liam and Paul had bullied her in court over the inheritance of the house and claimed that her brothers, quote, wanted me out on my ear. But, like O'Hara, Helen Jones's application for bail was ultimately refused, and she was remanded to Limerick Prison. The investigation into Paul Jones' killing was a complicated and extensive one, and with Gardee following over a hundred lines of inquiry, it was slow-moving. Eventually, after five months in custody, the charges for both Helen Jones and Keith O'Hara were upgraded to murder. The Book of Evidence was served to Jones and O'Hara in April of 2020, but by then, the court was under restrictions due to COVID-19, which meant that a jury could not be sworn in and the case would be delayed for some time. Finally, on November 23rd, 2021, a jury of seven men and five women was sworn in at the Central Criminal Court sitting in Cork. By this time, Jones and O'Hara were no longer in a relationship with each other and both parties pleaded not guilty to the charge of murdering Paul Jones on September 4th, 2019. In addition to the murder charge, Jones was charged with trespass while carrying a knife, while O'Hara faced an additional charge of trespassing to commit an assault causing harm, to which they both also pleaded not guilty. Mr Justice Michael McGrath told the jury that the trial was expected to take up to four weeks and he gave them a stern warning with regard to media coverage. In his instructions, Justice McGrath said, quote, The case might attract publicity and, insofar as it does, do not read anything or listen to anything that might emerge in the media. It is very, very important that the integrity of the system is maintained and that you decide the case on the basis of what you hear in court. The trial proper opened two days later, on November 24th. Siobhan Langford, senior counsel, told the jury that the evidence they would hear would show that the motive for the murder was a disputed inheritance. Liam Halen covered the trial extensively for the Irish Examiner and Evening Echo, and he detailed the prosecutor's opening statement. Ms Langford outlined that there had been an ongoing dispute between Helen Jones and her two brothers about the house on Cahargal Avenue. 
This had been the Jones family home, and after their father's death, it had been left in the will to the brothers, Liam and Paul. However, it was stipulated that Helen would be allowed to live in the home until her marriage. Indeed, Helen Jones and Keith O'Hara resided in the home at the time of her brother Paul's death. The prosecutor went on to detail how relations had soured between the Jones brothers and their sister, and in 2018, things escalated hugely when Liam and Paul brought a case before the courts trying to evict Helen Jones. They eventually came to an agreement whereby the house would be sold and Helen would receive a certain amount of the proceeds so that she would be able to secure alternative accommodation. The barrister went on to explain, quote, but despite the case being settled, there was ongoing acrimony. Miss Langford told the jury that they would hear evidence of the brutal death that Paul Jones suffered at the hands of the defendants. They would also hear from a taxi driver who brought them from their home in Cahargal Avenue to Paul Jones's house on the Bandon Road, and then back to Cahargal Avenue again. Along with this, there were multiple witnesses who would attest to seeing both Helen Jones and Keith O'Hara enter the home of Paul Jones, some of whom said they saw the woman standing over a body that was prone on the ground. Ms Langford went on to explain that later, a machete or billhook was found in the garden of a home in McCurtain Villas, and the court would hear evidence that when it was tested forensically, it was found to have blood that matched the DNA of Paul Jones on the blade, and blood that matched the DNA of Keith O'Hara, on the handle. Concluding her opening address, the prosecutor said, quote, There is no witness to say I saw the fatal blow or fatal blows, but you will hear witness after witness to construct brick by brick an edifice that Helen Jones and Keith O'Hara participated in and caused the murder of Paul Jones. Paramedic Vivian Ford gave evidence of attending the scene at 108 Bandon Road on September 7, 2019, recounting how she responded to a call that was logged as life status questionable, meaning there was a chance that the person in the house might be dead. She said she arrived at the location and saw Key and Jones and a number of other people present on the pavement outside the house. Paul Jones was lying in the hallway of the house, blocking access through the front door. Her crew alerted the guardie and also put a call out to the fire service as they knew they would need the firemen to help gain access to the home. Miss Ford described how she put her hand through the gap in the door to feel for signs of life. On doing so, Miss Ford saw that the area was covered in blood and she found that Paul Jones's body was cold. The witness told the court how fire service personnel had gained entry to the house, securing access for paramedics to enter. Once inside, she saw the body of a large man on the floor. His feet were facing the front door and his head was by the sitting room door as he lay partially on his right side. He was clothed only in his undergarments. She recalled, quote, It was difficult to see and get at him. There was blood on the floor. My job was to consider whether he was dead or not. And he was. His arms and legs were bent up. He was covered in blood. Deep rigor mortis had set in and he was confirmed dead. Following Vivian Ford's evidence, Detective Garda Morris O'Connor presented a compilation of CCTV footage to the court. The footage had been collected from various businesses in the region of Bandon Road, and it depicted the events of September 4th, 2019. The first clips showed Paul Jones on the morning of September 4th, going into Broderick's Pharmacy at 10.57am to collect his prescription. 
Seven minutes later, footage captured in Galvin's off-license showed him chatting with members of staff as he made his purchases. Later CCTV showed a taxi arriving in Bandon Road at 9.45pm that night, and then a few minutes later, Helen Jones and Keith O'Hara moving from Bandon Road toward McCurtain Villas. A number of civilian witnesses gave evidence next, telling the court what they saw on Bandon Road that night. Carmel O'Hurley was walking her dog with a friend just after half past nine, when they saw a woman wearing a dressing gown and slippers. The woman was banging on the door of a white-coloured house and she had a knife, like a steak knife, in her hand. Once Ms O'Hurley and her friend passed by, they looked back and saw the woman walking very quickly across the road. It seemed to her that the woman was talking or giving out to herself. Eyewitness Marie Hennessy gave similar evidence, telling the jury that the woman had no shoes on her feet. Next, taxi driver Pat Moynihan, who drove for Sun Cabs, gave detailed evidence about picking up Jones and O'Hara from Cahargal Avenue. He told the court that he knew Helen Jones to see and he also knew Paul Jones. Mr Moynihan said that he picked Helen Jones up from her house at Cahargal Avenue at half past nine on the night of the killing. She had a man with her, who she introduced as Keith. Moynihan said that Keith was staggering and drunk and the taxi driver was worried that he might get sick in the car. On the way to Bandon Road, Moynihan alleged that Keith had asked him to take a quick detour to Noonan Road. Moynihan did as he was asked and he claimed that Keith O'Hara got out of the car and bought himself 20 euro worth of hash. When they got to Bandon Road, Moynihan told the jury that Jones got out of the car while O'Hara stayed behind. The men watched from the taxi as Jones crossed the road to her brother's house. Mr Moynihan recalled that Helen began shouting and banging at the door and was making a bit of a racket. She was calling for Paul by name to come to the door. Keith then asked Moynihan to do a U-turn and go around by the house. After turning, the witness had pulled the taxi up right outside the house, and Moynihan said that he could see Paul standing in the door in just his boxers. Paul was facing out towards him, but the taxi man believed that Helen had gone into the house by that stage. Then, after a few minutes, according to the witness, O'Hara got out of the car and went into the house. Mr Moynihan had been paid €20 at the start of the journey, so he waited in the car for the pair. Brendan Grehan, senior counsel, appearing on behalf of Helen Jones, asked Moynihan what he had heard when his passengers entered the house. Mr Moynihan replied, quote, Only that they were yapping, that's all. They were kind of yelling. At the start, I thought it was going to be a bit of wrestling. I thought I would ring Toher Garda Station, but I got no answer. Then I thought it might be a minor thing. Mr. Grehan asked the witness what had caused him to ring the Garda Station, and the taxi driver said he had feared that whatever was going on might become a confrontation, that it might, quote-unquote, blow up. Tom Creed, representing Keith O'Hara, asked Moynihan what his reaction was when he heard Helen Jones at the door of Paul Jones's house saying, quote, you must have been thinking, God knows what's going to happen here. Moynihan agreed. He said he eventually drove off in the taxi, and as he did so, he heard O'Hara say, quote, go on. State pathologist Linda Mulligan gave evidence next, recounting how she examined Paul Jones's body on September 8th, 2019, the day after he had been found dead at his home. She told the jury that Jones was 5 foot 9 inches tall, weighed 19 stone, and suffered from a number of health conditions, including diabetes, high blood pressure, and arthritis. 
He also experienced anxiety and insomnia. The pathologist gave a detailed explanation of Paul's injuries to the court. She said that it was her view that death in this case was due to chop wounds to the head and multiple stab wounds to the trunk and right arm, with no contributing factors. The severity of the traumatic injuries was enough to cause the death. Dr Mulligan explained that the wounds to Mr Jones's arms were defensive in nature, meaning he had struggled with his attacker or put up his arms to shield himself. Under cross-examination from Mr Grehan, Dr Mulligan agreed that the chop wound to the front of the skull was consistent with being struck from the front. Then, Detective Garda Aoife Hayes was called to show the court the billhook that was found in the garden at McCurtain Villas a number of days after the murder. At this point, Mr Grehan asked the pathologist to hold the machete over Detective Hayes's head to demonstrate to the jury what positions the assailant and the deceased would have been in at the time of the blow. Mr Grehan then asked if the chop wound would have been bad enough to be fatal on its own, to which Dr Mulligan assented saying that it would. Mr Creed, for Keith O'Hara, posed the opposite question to Dr Mulligan, asking what the effect of the 25 stab wounds would have been if not accompanied by the chop wound. Dr Mulligan replied that the other wounds caused lung collapse and blood loss from the kidney and liver, which would have been fatal as well, with death occurring within 30 minutes to an hour after the injuries were inflicted. The pathologist told the court that Paul Jones's blood alcohol level at the time of death was three times the legal limit for driving. However, she said as Mr Jones had been a daily drinker, this level of alcohol would not have caused the same level of impairment that it would on someone who did not drink very frequently. Student Jack Ivory gave evidence that on the night of September 4th, 2019, he was a passenger in the car that was being driven by his girlfriend, Leona Murphy. They were travelling to Bandon Road when a woman suddenly got out of a taxi and walked across the road in front of their car. The woman appeared to be in her 50s, wore a dressing gown and was in her bare feet. He recalled that his girlfriend Leona had to slow the car down quite a bit to avoid hitting the woman. Mr Ivory said that the woman looked quite angry. She had gotten out of a taxi which then went and made a U-turn further down the road. Mr Ivory and his girlfriend stayed sitting in their car as the angry-looking woman approached Paul Jones's house. He saw a man come to the door in his boxer shorts, and the woman walked towards him. She still seemed visibly angry to the witness. Then, according to Mr Ivory, an argument broke out, and there was shouting going on. But he said that he didn't want to be seen watching, so he only glanced occasionally over his shoulder to see what was going on. The witness did see that another man, who he described as looking a little younger than the woman, got out of the taxi and made his way to the house. Mr Ivory then recalled hearing the man in the boxers moan and the younger man made some kind of taunt. After this, the witness saw the man in his boxers lying on his back in the hallway. He could see him from the top of his legs down. Mr Ivory said that at this point the woman was standing over the man on the ground, still shouting aggressively at him. She stood over him at his knees with a foot on either side of his legs and she was looking down at him. Mr Ivory said that he and his girlfriend then left their car to go into their house, but there was a problem with the key and the lock, and as a result, they were on the street for about 10 minutes, trying to get the door to open. By this time, the argument across the road had moved inside the house, and one of the parties had closed the front door, but he could still hear the man on the floor moaning. 
Mr. Ivory said, quote, It sounded like he was in a bit of pain. The prominent voice was the woman at the door. She sounded quite aggressive, quite angry. We could hear the man who was at the door moaning, like he was getting a bit of a beating. Brendan Grehan for Helen Jones asked Mr. Ivory what he thought the taunt was that the man had said to Mr. Jones. The young man thought it was something like, now so, and said that after the taunt, the man in the boxers had moaned. It was Mr. Ivory's impression that the man in the boxers was, quote, getting a few slaps. Leona Murphy also testified and told the court what she remembered of that night. The young woman admitted that the scene had been frightening, and so she was trying not to look at the argument. But Leona had seen the woman. She was standing at the door, roaring at the man inside. Eventually, she took another glance at the scene and saw that the man who had been standing inside had ended up on the floor. Leona told the court that she recalled having seen the soles of the man's feet. By this time, the woman was standing over the man, leaning down and screaming into his face. Miss Murphy had heard her use the word rat, but was unable to add any context to the word. The witness recalled, quote, She was more or less roaring in his face, as close as you could get if you were crouching. Another person who witnessed this exchange was Ivan Keeley, who was on the way to the nearby chipper with his mother. He also described what he saw in the doorway of 108 Bandon Road to the court, a man in the doorway who seemed to have something in his hand. The witness believed it was a shoe or a belt. Mr Keeley said that he saw the man in the doorway lunge towards the woman, but wasn't sure if they started fighting. The other man, the one with the woman, seemed to step in to intervene, and Mr Keeley thought he might have tried to hit the man standing in the door. Keeley recounted how he then saw the man and woman entering the house, and when they did, he said the man inside the house fell over. Siobhan Langford, prosecuting, asked Mr Keeley what had caused the man in his underpants to fall over, and the young man said he thought that the man had been pushed, possibly by the other man. Mr Grehan for Helen Jones reminded Mr Keeley of his original statement to Gardee, reading a portion of it out loud in court. It said, quote, I, the witness, Mr Keeley, believe he shouted at her not to come into the house. He was threatening to kill her. He lunged at her with whatever was in his hand. Mr Keeley agreed that this was what he had told Gardee. Mr Creed then asked Mr Keeley if the item in Paul Jones's hand might have been a machete, similar to the one that had been shown earlier in court, and the witness agreed that it was similar to the shape of the object he'd seen, but he said he couldn't be sure. Then Mr Creed asked if it was the case that when he saw the man strike out with the object in his hand, that the man had been threatening the woman at the door. Mr Keeley agreed that this was what he had witnessed, and that after, the other man had intervened, giving him the impression he was attempting to protect the woman. Yet another eyewitness took the stand next. Emily O'Sullivan was on her way home after being out for a walk when she saw a man leaning on the wall outside Paul Jones's house on Bandon Road. Ms O'Sullivan said the man seemed very distressed and was mumbling to himself and sounded annoyed. Just inside the door, the witness saw a woman who seemed to be having some sort of mumbled conversation with a man who was lying on the ground. The man on the floor was large and lay with his feet towards the door. She saw that he was covered in blood and that there was blood all over. Ms O'Sullivan said that the woman had been dressed very casually, like she had just gotten out of bed. The witness said, quote, She was mumbling to the man on the ground. I cannot remember exactly what she said, but it was to the effect of, this is what you get. 
I think she said something along the lines of, you got off light. Ms O'Sullivan said she believed she heard that sentiment more than once. The man lying on the ground made no noise. It was her impression that the scene was some sort of family dispute. Brigitte Greiner-Bolan, a senior lecturer at UCC, gave evidence next. She said that she was passing through McCurtain Villas at around 10pm that evening when she came across a man and a woman. The man was lying on the ground, conscious and moving. He was having a loud and agitated conversation with the woman. Ms Greiner-Bolan approached the couple and they stopped arguing. She asked the woman if the man was okay and the woman responded that he was fine and then attempted to get him up. The woman had a streak of blood on her face near her temple. The witness helped the woman get the man over the street and onto a wall. Ms Greiner-Bolan recalled that he was hardly able to walk and had asked if he had too much to drink. The witness said that the man had replied but was slurring his speech and had a heavy Cork accent. She told the court that as she wasn't a native Irish person, she couldn't understand his answer. Miss Greiner Bolin tried ringing a taxi for the couple but had no success. Eventually, she said, she managed to flag down a passing cab. She described the demeanour of the couple as agitated and incoherent. That taxi that was flagged down was driven by Mr Daniel Chidi-Ibe. He told the court that his offers of help to the couple were declined. Mr Chidi-Ibe noticed that the man had blood on his trousers. The witness recalled that he wanted the man to get an ambulance but that the woman said the man was fine, that he had been bitten but he was okay. The taxi driver dropped the couple to Mayfield and thought nothing more of the matter until the next day when he went to clean his car and realised that there was heavy blood staining on the rear seat and door handle of the car. He cleaned the blood with baby wipes. After hearing multiple witness statements, by this stage the trial was nearing the end of its second week, and the ongoing COVID-19 isolation restrictions were beginning to take a toll on the jury. Ireland was in the midst of its fourth wave of the infection, and the trial had started the week with one juror absent because of this. The judge reminded the remaining jurors that due to the safety precautions in the court, they were not considered close contacts. This juror was still absent on Wednesday when a second juror failed to attend because of a COVID-related issue, leaving just 10 jurors present. Justice Michael McGrath addressed the jury on the Wednesday morning and advised them of the situation, saying that the best course of action was to adjourn for the day. In the end, the remainder of the trial went ahead with just 10 jurors and COVID posed an ongoing worry, as trials by jury are required to have at least 10 jurors to go ahead. Court was back in session the following day, and evidence was heard from Brita O'Reilly, who had been a friend of Helen Jones. Describing their friendship, Ms O'Reilly said that she had practically lived with Jones before she got into the relationship with O'Hara, and the two women were very close and talked and visited with each other regularly. Brida said that she had called to Helen Jones's house on Thursday, September 5th, the day after the altercation at Bandon Road. Jones asked her if they could go up to Brida's house instead, which they did. Ms O'Reilly recalled that Jones had asked her to ring around the local hospitals to see if Paul had been admitted to any of them, which she did, but Paul wasn't in any of them. Then O'Reilly told the jury, quote, Helen looked at Keith. I don't know which of them said it, but one turned around and said, I don't know, did we kill him? 
Prosecution counsel Siobhan Langford asked Ms O'Reilly if she could remember the conversation she had had with Jones when she called to Jones's house on Cahargal Avenue that day. She replied that Helen had told her they had gone to Paul's the night before by cab. They'd had the taxi park on the main road and they'd gotten out and, quote, battered Paul. According to the witness, Ms Jones said that Paul was alive when they left and that they had checked to make sure he was breathing before leaving the scene. O'Reilly went on to explain that she had pressed her friend for more details and that Jones said that she had knocked on the door and covered the keyhole so that Paul couldn't see who was outside. When Paul opened the door in his boxers, O'Hara had run out of the cab. Ms O'Reilly told the court, quote, She didn't say what they'd done to him, but that he was given a beating, and when they left, he was still living. Keith fell on the ground when he was running. The witness told the prosecuting counsel that Helen Jones said that a woman had hailed a cab for the pair in McCurtain Villas. Ms Langford asked O'Reilly if she had any conversations with Helen Jones in the past regarding the Jones family home at Cahargal Avenue, and she replied that she knew about the court case and the disputed inheritance. O'Reilly said that Helen didn't talk about her brother Paul much, but that it was clear from what she did say that the siblings weren't talking to each other. O'Reilly also told the court that the same day she had called around to the hospitals checking for Paul Jones, her friend had also asked her to pick up a prescription from the doctor, which Helen told her was, quote, something to calm her nerves. O'Reilly had done so, also buying bread and cigarettes for Jones. Along with this, she also washed some clothes for her friend because Helen's washing machine was broken. In the process of doing the laundry, O'Reilly told the court that she noticed blood on a dressing gown belonging to Helen Jones, and Helen told her that the blood was from a cut on her finger. A witness named Martina Jones gave evidence next. Though she shared the same surname, she wasn't directly related to Paul Jones, but the pair had a close platonic friendship for over 40 years, since they were teenagers. She described Paul as a gentle giant who would do anything for you, and she told the court how she would always have the banter with him at family gatherings and occasions. Martina's sister ended up marrying Paul's brother Liam, so the two families were very close. Martina described a phone call she had had with Helen Jones on the night of September 7th, following the discovery of Paul's body. She'd received several missed calls from Helen and eventually returned a call to her at 10pm that night, which she decided to record. The recording was played in court for the jury to hear. Helen's voice could be heard saying, Is Liam okay? And Martina replied, What do you expect? He is devastated. Helen responded, So am I. I saw Paul's body coming out in a body bag on the nine o'clock news. Martina then told Helen that she had lost the love of her life, and Helen asked again how Liam was, with Martina reiterating that he was devastated. Helen then said, Martina, the same goes for me. Martina went on, I can't stop crying. I'm just in shock, girl. He didn't deserve that at all, whoever did that to him. Helen said, I 100% agree with you. Martina then asked Helen who she thought might have committed the murder, and Helen said that she didn't know, and that she hadn't spoken to Paul in months. Following Martina Jones's evidence, the jury were shown an exhibit of Snapchat messaging between Keith O'Hara and a relative of Paul Jones. The exchange begins with O'Hara messaging the relative on the evening of September 7th, after the news came out that Paul's body had been found. In the message, he said, quote, I heard, kid, and it's hard to believe. I have two brothers murdered, and I feel that still. It's very sad, kid. The relative had replied with a message which asked how Keith knew that it was murder. 
Another exhibit that had already been shown to the jury was shown again, when Jeremy Tuhig, the owner of Scott's Tools on North Main Street, Cork, gave evidence regarding the machete, which had been bought at his shop. Mr. Tuig explained that the type of blade in question was also known as a billhook, and its most common use was to clear overgrowth in a garden. The case continued into its third week, and on Monday, December 6th, the court heard from witness Nicola Barry, who was employed at Dunn's stores on Patrick Street in Cork. She described a conversation that she had had with Jones and O'Hara, who were known to her, less than a week before Paul Jones was murdered. Ms. Barry was at work on the shop floor between 6pm and 7pm on August 30th, when she bumped into Jones and O'Hara. She greeted Helen Jones, who replied, Don't start on me. Jones then went on a rant about the issues she was having regarding the inheritance and her brothers. Ms. Barry recalled Helen saying she was having terrible trouble with her brother and complaining that she had to spend €9,000 on solicitor's fees. Keith chimed in and said that the brother was going to pay for not handing over the house. Helen had agreed and went on and on about how she was entitled to the house before announcing that she was going up to see her brother. Siobhan Langford asked Nicola Barry if Helen had named the brother she was going to see and Ms Barry said that she hadn't. Ms Jones Senior Counsel Brendan Grehan put it to Ms Barry that his client had been angry and was venting and Ms Barry agreed. The next witness to give evidence was Kevin Hegarty, who was the solicitor representing Liam and Paul Jones in relation to the sale of the family home. Mr Hegarty told the court that the Jones sibling's father, William Jones, had changed his will in 2013, the week after his wife died. The new version of the will left the family home to Liam and Paul, with the provision that Helen could continue to live there until she got married. This resulted in a civil action taken by Helen Jones against her two brothers, which was settled in May 2019, four months before the death of Paul. The conditions of the settlement specified that the house would be sold and Helen Jones would receive €50,000 from the proceeds of the sale. Auctioneer Terence O'Leary told the court that the house at Cahargal Avenue was put on the market in May of 2019. The asking price was €199,000 and there were a lot of viewings which were all facilitated by Helen Jones. The highest offer on the house was €180,000 and Mr O'Leary said that Helen seemed happy to sell at that price, but that Liam Jones was reluctant. The auctioneer testified that Liam had ultimately declined the offer, but it had been his impression that Helen had wanted the house sold, and had been in favour of accepting the 180000 Mr O'Leary described Helen Jones and Keith O'Hara as polite and accommodating throughout the whole process. Sergeant John O'Connell and Sergeant Niall O'Connell gave evidence to the court regarding Keith O'Hara's initial four interviews with Gardee upon arrest. When asked if he had left the house at Cahargal Avenue on the night of September 4th, O'Hara had replied that he didn't recall. When investigators asked about bruises that he had had on his upper left arm, O'Hara claimed that they had happened during, quote, rough sex. He also had a fall on Thursday, September 5th, which accounted for some abrasions on his body, and a few days after this, he had gotten a tattoo on his neck, which was in the healing process at the time of his interview. O'Hara was asked about his movements on September 4th, and he told Gardy that he had stayed in watching TV with Helen Jones. They watched The Chase, Carnation Street, and other soaps before going up to bed and watching Orange is the New Black on Netflix. 
During his second interview, O'Hara was presented with a statement from Pat Moynihan, the taxi driver, who had said that he had picked up O'Hara and Jones at the house in Cahergal Avenue at 9.24pm on the night of the 4th. O'Hara had replied, quote, Jesus fucking Christ, that's sleep time for me. Gardee had asked him about going to Noonan Road and O'Hara said that he had gone there to buy hash and that Helen Jones had come with him. He went on to deny having killed Paul Jones, adding that he didn't carry knives, he hadn't stabbed the man and he had no ongoing rows with anyone. It was put to him that numerous witnesses had seen three people involved in an altercation at 108 Bandon Road, but again, Keith O'Hara denied having stabbed Paul Jones or having caused any injuries to him. Investigators acknowledged that he was claiming that he went to Noonan Road to buy drugs and that he'd said he didn't inflict injuries on anybody, but they said they just wanted to know what he had been up to that night. O'Hara said to him that maybe they were asking the wrong person and said once again that he was totally innocent. Gardee then asked if O'Hara was protecting Helen Jones and he responded with further denials that he had anything to do with Paul's death and insisted that he hadn't even been in the house for a few seconds on the evening in question. He flatly denied having been in 108 Bandon Road. After the reading of the memos to the court, forensic scientist Yvonne O'Dowd gave evidence, telling the jury that she had tested the billhook found in the hedge at McCurtain Villas. The blood on the blade matched the DNA of Paul Jones, while the blood found on the handle matched the DNA of Keith O'Hara. Blood found on a sock belonging to O'Hara was also found to be a match for Paul's DNA. The next day, Keith O'Hara took the stand in his own defence. He admitted that he had been present at 108 Bandon Road. He told Tom Creed that on the night in question, he got out of the cab with the intention of taking Helen away from Paul Jones's house. But when he got to the door, he saw that Paul Jones had something in his hand and was swiping it at Helen. O'Hara said he'd then pushed Paul and took the thing out of his hand and hit him over the head with it. He told the court, quote, I will be forever sorry about that. I had no idea it was the billhook that was in court. I just saw something black in his hand and grabbed it. In an attempt to explain away the DNA found on his sock, O'Hara said that he had stumbled inside the door of the house, where there had been an amount of blood on the floor. According to O'Hara, Helen had trampled in the blood and it had splashed up onto his leg. He then insisted that Paul was still alive when he left. His eyes were open and he'd heard him speak, saying the phrase, I don't know. Mr Creed asked his client what he thought Paul Jones meant when he had said this, and O'Hara explained he thought Paul was trying to answer for where the blood had come from. Continuing his narrative of the evening, Keith O'Hara described how, as Paul Jones lay on the floor in a pool of his own blood, Helen got on top of his body. She had sort of sat on top of him, straddling him, and, according to O'Hara, was motioning as if she was punching him on the right side of his body. He told the court, quote, I was shocked, feeling sick. I never saw so much blood in my life. I never want to see it again. Mr Creed asked how long Helen Jones was punching for and O'Hara said it was a good few seconds. O'Hara said he'd told Helen to ring an ambulance, but that she had told him to keep out of it, that it was a Jones family feud and that he'd better keep his mouth shut. When asked why he'd gone along with this, O'Hara said that even though he hadn't actually seen the knife at that stage, 
he, quote, didn't want to be number two. After this, the defendant testified the pair had left the house and ran to McCurtain Villas, where O'Hara claimed that Helen had handed him the bill hook and he had thrown it away in the hedge. Mr. Creed asked why he thought Helen Jones had handed him the implement, and O'Hara said he wasn't sure, but maybe it was to implicate him in what she had just done. He said it was only then that he realised that Helen had a knife. It was a knife that she usually kept by her bedside at home. O'Hara claimed he then realised the extent of the situation and urged Helen again to ring an ambulance, saying, quote, your brother is bleeding to death, call an ambulance. But he said Helen Jones had just reiterated to him that it was a family matter and none of his business. When asked about the tattoo of Helen's name that he got on his neck following Paul Jones's death, O'Hara said he had gotten it to annoy his ex, rather than out of love or loyalty to Helen. Then his lawyer asked O'Hara why he had gone into the house at 108 Bandon Road. O'Hara responded that the trip there was self-defence. He continued, quote, A day has not passed that I have not felt sorry for Paul. Maybe in some other life, the Jones family will forgive me for my part in what happened that night. He was a nice man. After answering questions from his own lawyer, Brendan Grehan, appearing on behalf of his co-defendant Helen Jones, took to his feet to quiz Keith O'Hara about his version of events. Defence counsel stated, quote, You got into the witness box. You lie, you lie, and lie again to drag Helen Jones down with you. O'Hara responded that he did not kill Paul Jones and claimed that he didn't do anything to stop Helen as he didn't want to get attacked by her. In fact, O'Hara said he had been attacked by Helen Jones before. Mr. Grehan took issue with this accusation and asked if there was anything that O'Hara wouldn't say to disparage Helen Jones. To this, O'Hara replied, quote, Do her down? I'm sitting here because of her. She killed her brother. Mr. Grehan then made reference to a number of witnesses who had heard Helen shouting stop during the altercation, and he asked O'Hara what this was about. O'Hara curtly replied that Grehan's client had murdered her brother, and, quote, The dog and the cat and the rat all know Helen killed her brother. Mr. Grehan replied, asking, quote, And the fellow with the billhook? What did he do? To this, O'Hara simply restated that he did not kill Paul Jones. Brendan Grehan suggested that, in fact, it was Mr. O'Hara who was the one doing the stabbing, while Helen was shouting for him to stop. The senior counsel said that, in giving the testimony as he had done, O'Hara was simply looking after his own interests and accused him of being a violent psychopath, that he had, in fact, been the one to kill Paul Jones. Grehan said now, as he sat before the court, O'Hara was no longer with Helen and felt bitterly towards her, and so had decided to place the blame upon her. But again, O'Hara denied this and said that Helen Jones was responsible and was now using her lawyer to hide behind. Mr. Grehan asked Keith O'Hara if he was so innocent, why didn't he ring an ambulance for Paul Jones? O'Hara said, quote, I told Helen to ring an ambulance for Paul. She said no. It was a Jones family feud. She said, fuck Paul, he's only a fat bastard. At one point, O'Hara's defence lawyer, Mr. Creed, intervened, saying that Mr. Grehan was barracking the witness rather than asking a question. Mr. Grehan acknowledged his antagonistic approach and withdrew his previous remarks. He then moved on to discuss the level of truthfulness of O'Hara's testimony. Mr. Grehan put it to the witness that he had lied to the guards, lied to the jury about not being familiar with knives, and about not being a violent man. The defendant said that he hadn't intentionally lied, 
and that if he had lied, they were, quote, innocent. When Mr. Grattan asked if his unintentional lies were similar in nature to the way he had hit Paul Jones with the billhook, O'Hara responded that he was sorry for that action and that he hadn't meant to hurt Mr. Jones. Mr. Grattan then asked Keith O'Hara about his previous assault convictions that he had in Ireland and the UK. O'Hara said that he had simply been defending himself, and Mr. Grattan pointed out that O'Hara seemed to be this person walking around with fights breaking out around him and that he was always simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, just as he claimed he was on the night of September 4th, 2019. The counsel for Helen Jones put it to Mr. O'Hara that he wanted the jury to believe that he had acted in self-defence in this instance, despite Mr. Jones never having raised a hand against him. O'Hara responded that Paul Jones had swung for Helen, and he wasn't going to take the chance that the same thing would happen to him. Grehan then suggested that O'Hara had read the book of evidence and got into the witness box and, quote, tailored his own version of events to account for the evidence. O'Hara took exception to this, saying that Helen Jones wasn't on the stand explaining what had happened that night, and accused her again of being the one responsible for the murder of her brother. He said that Helen Jones was the murderer. Mr. Grehan replied, quote, we will let the jury decide that. That was not the end of the cross-examination of Keith O'Hara. In the course of his evidence on the stand, Keith O'Hara had claimed that the taxi driver, Pat Moynihan, had told him that he saw something in Paul Jones's hand in the doorway of 108 Bandon Road, and that this was why he had exited the cab to get to Helen. However, Siobhan Lankford, for the prosecution, said that Mr. Moynihan had never said this, and that O'Hara's evidence that day was the first time that anyone had suggested that Paul Jones was holding anything in his hand. Referring to the blow that the victim had sustained to the head from the billhook, Ms. Langford said, quote, This is a powerful blow. This is a proper wallop on the top of the head. What you did was not a tap or a whack. It had real force behind it. O'Hara said that he had accepted that, but denied that he had been in the house as Paul Jones was stabbed, whether by him or his co-defendant Helen Jones. The prosecuting counsel asked him about the differing accounts he gave to Gardee over the course of his interviews, and Keith O'Hara said that he had been cowardly back then and had lied to the investigating officers. O'Hara denied being a, quote, enthusiastic participant on the night of Mr. Jones's death, though he had agreed when Ms. Langford said that both himself and Helen Jones had walked away from the bloody and violent incident without a scratch. Ms. Langford then turned her questioning to the tattoo on O'Hara's neck. She said that it seemed like an indication that the relationship was deeply committed. O'Hara confirmed that he and Helen Jones had thought of the idea of getting married and that he had bought Ms. Jones a ring. Ms. Langford put it to O'Hara that he had lied when he told his own counsel that the relationship between the two defendants was over by the 10th of September. O'Hara said that by that time, the relationship was entirely based on sex. Ms. Langford suggested, quote, perhaps you took the view that the relationship should cease when you were questioned for murder but right up to that, you were deeply committed to Helen Jones. You had her name tattooed on your neck 72 hours after the demise of Paul Jones. After he had spent two long, gruelling days in the witness box, Keith O'Hara's defence wrapped up. Helen Jones chose not to give evidence in her own defence. Closing arguments began on December 13th, 2021. Siobhan Langford, prosecuting, told the jury that they knew that Helen Jones had gone to 108 Bandon Road that night, armed with a knife, 
and when the door was closed, both Jones and O'Hara were inside the house. This was when Paul Jones had 25 stab wounds inflicted on him and had his skull split open with a machete. She said, quote, It's hard to imagine circumstances where a person who did that would not intend to cause death. And she continued, quote, We know that the wound to the head was caused by the bill hook. Mr. O'Hara told you he utilised the weapon on Paul Jones's head, and we know that 25 stab wounds were caused by a knife. Dr. Mulligan said it was very unlikely that the machete caused the stab wounds. The logical inference, argued Ms. Langford, was that there were two murder weapons wielded by two murderers. She concluded by asserting that there was a joint animus against Paul Jones and that both of the accused had committed the murder of Paul Jones. In his closing argument, Brendan Grehan, defending Helen Jones, pointed out that his client was wearing a dressing gown and had no shoes on when she went to 108 Bandon Road. He said, quote, You could not say that she was dressed to kill. She was not dressed for the occasion or armed for the occasion. She had a bit of a barney with her brother. She was giving out to him. That was it. This was not a planned event. Mr. Grehan went on to say that it was not his job to prosecute Keith O'Hara. His main interest was to protect Helen Jones. But no one besides Keith O'Hara had said they saw Helen Jones stab Paul Jones. His client had been under the impression that Paul had been beaten up and had not thought that Paul was fatally injured when she left that night. Addressing the prosecution theory that there were two weapons and two murderers, Mr. Gretton told the jury that theories were not something they could convict on, that evidence was required. In defence of Keith O'Hara, Tom Creed pointed out that although O'Hara's blood was found on the machete, there were no fingerprints belonging to him on the handle. The blood, claimed Mr. Creed, came from the injury he sustained when he fell in McCurtain Villas, and it was transferred to the handle of the machete when Helen Jones handed the weapon to him to dispose of. Mr. Creed argued, quote, He was only concerned about getting a small deal of hash from his buddy on Noonan Road. If he was going to tailor his evidence, he would have said that Helen Jones stabbed Paul Jones and hit him in the head with a cleaver, and then gave him the cleaver outside. But that's not what happened. Mr. O'Hara did what he did, and he said he did it. But he did it because he was in fear that Paul Jones was going to hit Helen Jones with that implement. One is entitled to protect oneself or another from a violent attack. That is called self-defence. The jury of ten began their deliberations late on December 15th. On December 16th, they asked if they could have the transcript of Keith O'Hara's evidence. Mr Justice Michael McGrath said that it was not possible to give them the transcript of the testimony. However, the judge instead read the entire transcript of O'Hara's evidence back to the jury. This took most of the day, following which the jury asked to see the exhibits again. It was expected that because of this, the deliberations would continue on to the following day. However, at half past three, the jury indicated that they had reached a unanimous verdict on all counts. They found Helen Jones and Keith O'Hara guilty of the murder of Paul Jones. As a natural consequence of this, they were also found guilty of the trespass charges against them. Justice Michael McGrath thanked the jurors for their care and attention and told them that they were exempt from jury duty for life. Sentencing was adjourned until the following day so that victim impact statements could be prepared by Paul Jones's family. Brendan Grehan, senior counsel, asked the judge if his client, Helen Jones, could be kept in the holding cells while the statements were read, as she feared she would become physically ill. The judge said he would consider the matter. At sentencing, Justice McGrath handed down the mandatory life sentences 
to both Helen Jones and Keith O'Hara. Jones received an additional concurrent four-year sentence for aggravated burglary. O'Hara got a concurrent three-year sentence for trespass with intent to cause injury. It emerged post-trial that Helen Jones had eight previous convictions for assault, six for simple assault and two for assault causing harm. A victim impact statement was read out by Gardee on behalf of Liam Jones, who was too unwell to attend the trial. Liam said that he had been physically sick since Paul's death. The statement read in part, quote, I can't get over Paul's death and how he died. When I realised how he died, I was shell-shocked. I went into a state of numbness and disbelief. This was a tragic death that Paul had, and he didn't deserve it. Paul lived a quiet life in the last few years and only went out two or three times a week to do some shopping. Paul's death left a big void in my life. Liam concluded his statement by saying that he was glad that Paul had gotten justice. He said that he hoped Paul could now rest in peace. In a further victim impact statement, Paul's family spoke of being robbed of the opportunity to say goodbye to the man that they loved. They were tormented by his last moments and what he must have felt and suffered. The family said they were unhappy with the defendants pleading not guilty and they felt that they could have admitted the murder and spared the further trauma of the court case and all of the awful details that were heard in evidence. They said, quote, The house in Cahargal Avenue is still there, but Paul is not due to their actions. A house is only bricks and mortar. But he was a living human being. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week goes out to Sheila Hanley. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Winita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the amazing Aileen Spearin. Additional writing and production was by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.